Green, Green Left Weekly, Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Greenleft is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. Um, it is 7 a.m. Um, well, just about to hit 7 a.m. And on the line is myself, Jacob, and Zane. Hello, hello. All right. Um, I guess before we announce what we have coming up on our program, uh, I'd like to acknowledge um, that our program today is being broadcast to you from the wandering land of the Kulin Nation. Um like to pay our respect um, to elders past and present, and that this always was, um, always will be Aboriginal land. So, good morning, everyone. Um, what, what, what big major news story should we discuss first, um, Zane? Uh, well, people are probably sick of hearing about it at this stage, to some extent, but it's kind of the the big thing at the moment. Um, the coronavirus um, um, pandemic. Yeah, that whole thing, the pandemic. Well, I think you know, um, I'm actually I'm actually bracing myself that I don't think the next month or so is going to be normal. Um, in fact, I think it's we're kind of at this moment, like this program is actually going to be kind of like the moment before the big panic. It's think I think based on what's happening in the United States, what's happening in Italy, um, that there's likely going to be, you know, a serious sort of closure of mass gatherings, public events. I already feel a bit weird about the protests that's happening today. In fact, I have a strong feeling it's probably going to be the last protest for a bit. Um, with most activist groups actually, um, just looking internationally, most activist groups are already postponing a lot of their planned protests in May and April. Um, there's some rumours that some big major conferences um, are going to be postponed. Um, I've also heard potential rumours um, that some universities um, are going to be closing down um, and potentially all the o- online, potentially all the work is going to be done online. Um, and I guess I guess a few things to kind of say. In fact, I think we'll probably have a bit more further discussion, I guess, on this. But there's a, I think a lot, there's a lot of things about this particular crisis, um, that say something politically. Um, that is, I think, it's quite interesting, I think, that, um, I think it's also unacceptable that what our governments are potentially doing are, well, gotta be doing is essentially bowing out the capitalists. Um, and that worker, um, this, um, at Candace, um, stands the risk of risking many, um, millions of casual workers who do not have sick leave, um, to be pushed into poverty, um, as a result of the, of uh, the coronavirus outbreak. And I think it should be the bare minimum, um, that, you know, workers, um, should be compensated. But of course, the unfortunate thing is it's likely without some kind of fight or some kind of struggle, especially from the union movement, that it's mostly going to be, um, the bosses, um, that are going to be, um, that are going to be bailed out. 
Yes, and the federal government announced uh, something like a $17 billion stimulus this week. However, uh, various interviews have reported that about three-quarters of that stimulus is about, uh, as you say, bailing out business and, and handing cash to businesses. There's a $150,000 asset, instant asset write-off, which will mean that uh, basically businesses can avoid paying uh, tax for the coming um, period. It's like a big tax write-off on buying uh, infrastructure or whatever for your business, computers, cars, all that kind of crap. Uh, and nothing has been done. The ACTU, to their credit, they haven't exactly waged a huge campaign, but they've at least been raising the fact that as the Australian economy has become highly casualised and more people are reliant on casual work, and as wages have slowly kind of stagnated, uh, you can't save money when you're a casual worker on 25 bucks an hour getting three or four shifts a week, even if you're full-time. 25 bucks an hour is bugger all. So this idea that casual workers, this idea that, um, I don't know if it was, was it Frydenberg or the, the uh, Christian Porter maybe, the social services minister, going, oh, yeah, well, they're casuals, so they should have, uh, you know, they get paid more, so they should have put some money aside. No, no, no. People's wages have been gradually declining as unions have been hogtied and smashed over the last 30 or 40 years. And casuals don't have this nest egg of money just sitting there for a rainy day in most cases. And so that is the fundamental situation is casual workers are like, well, do I have two weeks off and stop paying rent and get evicted from my house? Or do I go to work when I'm sick, even though I know that I shouldn't? And by not addressing this issue that has been very clearly pointed out to the federal government, they are doing nothing to rectify that situation, which is fundamentally of their creation over the last... This is neoliberalism. The parties that created neoliberalism, which created a situation where there's a huge number of casual workers on shitty wages who cannot afford time off. That is a situation of their creating, of their creation, and they're not doing anything to address that situation. So this stimulus package, it's mainly handouts to big business, and then there's this kind of job guarantee for apprentices and like one-off $750 payments to people on Newstart. Newstart should be raised by probably at least $200 a fortnight anyway. A one-off seven hundred and fifty dollar payment—that's good. Like that, that sure. Like that's not a bad thing. Giving some stimulus payments to people that are languishing in abject poverty on Newstart. But the thing that is still missing is a a payment where any casual worker can presumably through the ATO go. All right, here is my income from the last year. I earn less than say forty or fifty thousand dollars the ATO know this because they've got my tax return from last year here is a note from my doctor saying I need to have two weeks off bang you get whatever it is a thousand twelve hundred dollar payment that allows you to continue paying your rent and you know buy expensive food deliveries and stuff while you're quarantined for two weeks mm. that isn't there 
There's been tens of billions of dollars in tax cuts for people earning over 180 grand. There's been tax cut after tax cut over the last few decades. The government, modern monetary theory is a controversial one in Marxist um, circles, but basically modern monetary theory points out that the government can actually just print money, and the main constraint to doing so is inflation. But there's not actually any particular reason that the government can't, especially in a situation like this, offer that guarantee, offer that thing. Anyone who gets quarantined, you'll be getting blah payment, unless you're like, unless you're someone who's got a five investment properties or you earn a hundred grand or upwards, then you don't get it. But it's, it wouldn't yeah, be that hard. I think I think one of the things as well, and I think the coronavirus. Um, COVID-19 pandemic is going to be quite revealing about the nature of capitalism, especially the United States and its, well, pretty much its medieval-like response to it. Uh, In fact, they simply do not have the health infrastructure. In fact, the fact that it costs money to even get testing. I mean, Australia, to its credit, we do have uh, a universal healthcare system, but we there's more that could be done for example we should be having mass testing everyone should be able to get the, have the right to be um tested um in fact you know all this talk about you know criticizing consumers or individual working class people for panic buying well actually you know the government should be panic buying right now they should be panic buying doctors um equipment nurses um to be able to handle um this crisis um and in fact another issue as well yes and our comrades over at uh, red flag have just published an article to that effect hmm. yeah and then there's also um the other thing is the most rational thing for a lot of governments to do would actually be to to just shut down the cities um, which is, in a sense, that all they would have to do would be to keep hospitals, supermarkets going, and just encourage people to stay home. Mm. And then, of course, all workers in that context should be just given the full pay um, at the beginning. For some workers who might be able to work from home, yeah, sure, that could be arranged, etc. Um, they could just limit, you know, human contact, etc., um, through so, you know, social distancing measures. But, of course, the problem with that for the capitalists, is that it's essentially putting the economy on hold. Mm. Um, and, but, of course, um, but it's quite funny because, on the other hand, um, gov- um, we're possibly going to be seeing, I think Daniel Andrews is sort of alluding that similar processes are going to be happening to that effect, but probably a softer kind um, than what, say, China implemented. On the other hand, um, you know, governments like especially the United States and Australia, especially right-wing governments, are implementing, you know, measures that are kind of authoritarian but in another direction, more in trying to um, close off borders as as a Band-Aid solution to dealing with this pandemic. And, of course, it's all in the kind of context. Um, early on, it was all in the context around, um, you know, brushing up sort of Australian nationalism and brushing up kind of racism. So there was all this sort of anti-Chinese racism. But now that the virus has spread so um, clearly spread worldwide, um, well, there's nothing <laughs> but, um, we can't... Just direct in China. In fact, China, to its credit, although there was probably some mistakes or some mishaps along the way, mm. has actually handled this crisis much more effectively than a lot of these um, governments. Mm. Yeah, and some of the reports that are coming out are pretty disturbing. As you say, testing is so important 
so that the spread of the virus can be accurately mapped and gauged and those sort of mass closures of uh, schools and gatherings and, and those sort of measures, they are based off the spread of the disease. And if you're not accurately mapping the spread of the disease, those measures can't be implemented in a timely fashion. And there's been disturbing reports of large numbers of people turning up to uh, hospitals here in Melbourne to get tested for COVID-19 and being turned away because they don't fit this really narrow criteria. It's not enough for you just to have symptoms. You also need to have come in contact with either a known coronavirus carrier or someone who's recently returned from the USA, Italy or Iran. And that's a problem. Now, there's there's probably a bunch of people who don't actually really need to be tested, who are uh, just kind of freaking out and they're turning up at the hospital and that's a burden on the system. Okay, that's annoying. But on the flip side, there are people who are symptomatic, who very well could be carrying COVID-19, who are being turned away. And that is the sort of situation that we're seeing in the U.S., and that is the sort of situation that we'll see this thing spread and get out of control because we're not actually keeping tabs on who's got it, who doesn't, where is it spreading and how. And so absolutely, they're, they're, part of what the federal government has announced is a program of mobile testing, 100 mobile testing labs or, or labs being set up all across Australia. Uh, but that's it's, it's like quite... It's not due to happen until April or May. Hmm. That really needs to be ramped up but right it, away. But as I sort of saying before, it reveals the kind of nature of the capitalist system because from the perspective of our government, they're essentially trying to maintain a balance between um, serving the interests of clearly the nation in terms of making sure this virus doesn't spread um, too much, but they're also attempting to make sure... They're trying to maintain a balance of actually maintaining the actual capitalist system in terms of its profit making and accumulation of capital. If we were, if we had a system that was actually based on human need, we could all just rationally decide what is necessary and what needs to be done and not have to be concerned about the profits of um, corporations and businesses. Yeah, sure. But I mean, even if this was a socialist society and we weren't so worried about the profit motive, I still think that um, an early big rollout of testing would be crucial because... Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm saying that, that's what I'm essentially what I'm and, saying, yeah. And an example being the Marxism conference that's coming up, the protest that's happening today, there's all kinds of stuff that are not about capital accumulation, which it would still be good to be able to do them if we were able to conclusively say, all right, that the infection hasn't spread to such an extent that we need to cancel these things. But, yeah, it's, 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 a, big, it's a big problem. And I think um, the chickens are coming home to roost, in a sense, after decades of neoliberalism chipping away at the public health care system. There's less hospital beds per capita than there used to be. There's less nurses per capita than there used to be. There's less funding than there used to be. All of these things have been eroded. And now that this pandemic is, is here, there's not the resources there to kind of ramp up the hospital system. Whereas if we had more of a, 
you know, if if this was like Cuba, if if we if Australia was like a a, a wealthier version of Cuba, and poured any anywhere near the the proportion of what Cuba spends on their healthcare system, if if Australia spent anywhere near um, the amount relative to our economy on health that a country like Cuba, well, there's not many countries like Cuba. Cuba really spends a heap of uh, money and resources on healthcare compared to the modest size of their economy. And yeah. if anyway, Australia was we, like we that, might we just, could... Um, we might move on from this topic just to have a bit of a break, and we probably might talk about mm. um, the US elections following this interview. Um, but just might play a quick announcement, and then I'll announce, um, we'll sort of bring up this um, interview that we have um, a pre-recording. Um, just play, yeah, we'll play a quick announcement. 3CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. VCR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. It is um, 7.18am. And um, for this program today, we have a bit of a special interview um, that was um, recorded by um, uh, Green Left's um, Alex Bainbridge. Um who was um, recently went to a trip um, to the HDP conference um, in uh, Turkey. Um, the HDP, just for a bit of background, are a democratic kind of socialist organisation or broad left, a broadly left organisation in um, Turkey um, that's kind of known for having a very strong pro-Kurdish element. Um, so, you know, in the in the context of Turkey, this is quite significant um, because um, the Kurdish community is generally a, a oppressed minority in the context of the Turkey state. Um, the HDP have a number of elected MPs, um, and they've been playing quite a key role in a lot of social struggles around um, social justice, etc. And their gov and their party has also been um, faced heavily repression um, by the Turkish state. You know, with a number of HDP MPs have been arrested, um, put under house arrest, um, persecuted against um, um, by the by the Turkish government. In fact, that would be very similar to say, if in Australia, um, Greens MPs were were arrested routinely um, or persecuted. So we have an interview. Um, this is an interview of one of the MPs, um, and his name is Hizar Osoy, um, who yeah. 
essentially an MP for um, the people, um, People's Democratic Party, the HDP, um, and yep, we're going to be playing um, the first 22 minutes of uh, a pre-recorded interview um, with him. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, we're having a slight technical issue. When I press that button, it don't want to play. Have we got a backup mode? Uh, wait, I think I might know the problem with that. I might be able to fix it in <laughs> a few minutes. All right. Uh, let's play a song. Yep. And, yeah, we'll see if we can get that uh, interview up. I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, the current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio? Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Follow, follow the sun in which way the wind blows. You said we should look out further. I guess it wouldn't hurt us. We don't have to be around all these coffee shops Now we got that percolator Never made a latte greater I'm saving $23 a week We drive to a house in Preston We see police
Right, apologies listeners, um, we just had a technical error with um, playing um, the interview. We're going to be playing this interview with Hazar Ozoi, um, who is an elected MP with um, the HDP um, party in Turkey, and this interview was recorded in Turkey. Um, let me just... Recr broadcasters present over a hundred radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Come to more Recr Community Radio. Please subscribe now. Community Radio So my name is Ishar Right, apologies listeners, um, we just had another technical error, but it's all fixed now. Um, so we're going to be playing this interview by the HTP um, parliamentarian, who I'm hoping I'm pronouncing the name right, Hazar Orsoy. So my name is Ishiar Orsoy, I am a member of parliament from the HTP. I represent the Erbakir, which is a kind of unofficial capital of uh, Kurdistan of Turkey. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have been serving my party uh, as the deputy chair in charge of foreign affairs since February 2016. Mm -hmm. Yesterday we had our congress, a successful one, and I'm looking forward to my new uh, position. Mm -hmm. Now, also, if there's any question I ask which is not a good question, you just let me know. Okay. Mm -hmm. But to start off with, uh, it seems to me Turkey wants to present itself to the world as being part of Europe, democratic, concerned about human rights, this is the image they want to present. Yeah. At the same time, there's authoritarian crackdown on the political left, on the yeah. Kurdish community. Yeah. Can you describe to an international audience how you see Turkey's, the role of the Turkish state and Turkey's role in, in the world? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the kind of democracy we have in Turkey is only very limited and quite formal. By that, I mean, we have some formal elections, right? We, we have a parliament and... We do have some local governments which uh, have been severely undermined and the parliament is mostly dysfunctional. Uh, we, uh, over the last few years, we have been also dealing with a, a very strange, bizarre uh, political system that is called the Turkish-type presidential system uh, in which uh, all powers are monopolized in the hands of the president of the country we don't have any separation of powers. We don't have any independent judiciary. So it is a, a, an institutional um, um, uh, uh, instability now mm-hmm. that is characterizing the whole uh, political landscape. So, of course, Turkey wants to promote uh, its image as one of a pluralistic democratic country, but particularly over the last four years, by that I mean the, 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 the abortive coup that happened in July 2016. Um, and the government, those who are in power, they have been implementing a very repressive and unlawful campaign against any critical voice in the country, not only the HDP. Of course, my party is the second biggest opposition party at the parliament, and uh, we do represent the majority of Kurdish people in the country, as well as all the marginalized peoples of Turkey. This can be the left, the Alevi community, the Armenians, Assyrians, uh, the non-Muslim uh, populations, 
so the disabled people, we do have a very powerful kind of feminist agenda too as a party. Uh, uh, the youth and women, they do have their autonomous assemblies, they make their own decisions. So uh, in a way, the HDP has been trying to kind of carry all the, uh, those groups at the margins of the society to the center, right? Those communities that have been historically repressed and marginalized and excluded from the political landscape. So we are bringing all of them back into the state. In that way, we have been putting... It's kind of a shock therapy for the, <laughs> the Turkish kind of establishment, which has been based upon... Uh, kind of foundational exclusions of all this, like Kurdish, Alevi, and Armenian, and Greek, and other populations, as well as the poor people and women and the youth and other marginalized sectors of the society. So, but but the fight is not simply against the HDP. It is a bigger one. The civil society in general is under uh, crackdown. More than 5,000 academics, they have lost their jobs. More than 100,000 people, they lost their jobs, were dismissed without any court decision. It is just through government decrees under emergency rule, which was formally in effect between 2016 and 2018. It was abolished then in 2018, but most emergency powers were later included into the national legislation. So we are living under a permanent emergency rule, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, in practice... Nothing has changed, really. So this is the kind of general climate we are in. It is a transitional period. It is a very violent transitional period. Those who are in power are so scared that they can lose their power. That is why the state and the government has been kind of waging a war against the people. It's a very interesting moment in, 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 in the history of Turkish and Kurdish politics here. So in addition to this, Turkey is also in a mess with the relations with Syria and with Libya. Turkey is actively fighting two wars now, actually. The parliament is mostly silent about this. The only HDP has been opposing to all these wars Turkey is trying to wage you know, at the regional level. Uh, we have a huge economic crisis now in the country and it is deepening. People are tired of But then they are scared to express their kind of... Uh, feelings, their ideas, because the moment you start talking, then you know you need to pay a dearly price. And the only organized group that is paying that price and taking the risk and standing against this you know, authoritarian kind of tendency, very powerful, is, unfortunately I'm saying this, unfortunately, the HDP. It's not that we are heroes. We are not heroes. But individually, we are not scared. I mean, as an individual, I'm not scared, really. I don't have fears about what's going to happen to me. And I, I may go to prison and other things may happen. Uh, already, we have our two former co-chairs, several members of parliament, over 50 elected Kurdish mayors, and a total of more than 5,000 people, members, associates, and administrators of the HDP are already in prison. I can go to prison, too. So all these people, we don't have a personal fear, really, what's going to happen to us, our families personally. But we do have fears about the future of our peoples and the future of this country. Mm -hmm. If we cannot stop this authoritarian kind of rule, uh, uh, and, and we think that there will be more kind of instability in the country, it won't be the rich and those who are in power who will pay the price. At one point, they may even leave the country. 
It will be the people, the actual people, who are trying to live on the margins of the society. Those people are going to pay the price. That is why we do have fears for them, and that is why we, we assume a certain role and responsibility. The HTP, I mean, we do have a very central place in, in, in uh, Turkish and Kurdish politics. Uh, in last uh, local elections, we had them in March uh, 2019, uh, and there were the repeated Istanbul elections in June as well. So we were kind of the kingmaker party. Uh, we, we supported the, the kind of broader opposition, and, 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 and we made Erdogan to pay a dear, dear price for what he has been doing to, you know, the Kurds and other people that we represent over the last four years. So that was kind of our kind of very swift and organized revenge. It was a political response. So we undermined the, the AKP, which is the ruling party, and MHP, which is their kind of ally, the ultra-nationalists. So we somehow undermined them, and now we are getting prepared for the final battle. Uh, and the political battle, and, and we, 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 we are both, you know, well prepared and we are very optimistic that in the first elections uh, we will find a solution uh, to this big problem. I mean, normally they are scheduled for, uh, let me see, June 2023. That's the normal schedule. But, uh, and we may have early elections, there is a lot of pressure on the government, the country is unstable, the problems that the country is facing in Syria are very, very challenging, and the economy is not recovering. Uh, I mean, if we don't have kind of a revolutionary kind of uh, situation now, it's mostly because over the last three years, and by means of emergency rule powers, the government has been repressing the society very brutally, right? But they can't maintain this situation for long, because, and this is how it works, and this society is full of conflict and contradictions. For a while, you may be able to somehow repress them, but at one point, it's going to explode. That's what we saw, I mean, during the Arab Spring in many, many countries, in Tunisia, I mean, in Egypt, in Morocco, in almost everywhere, now Lebanon and Iraq and Iran, everywhere. And not only in the Middle East, in many parts of the world, I mean, people are coming to a point where they are saying, enough is enough. So I can tell you this much, that in Turkey, there has been kind of an accumulation, a constant accumulation of, of, of rage, of... of um, not only rage though, I mean, not only anger, right, frustration, of course, that is being accumulated there. But at the same time, people, until very recently, they didn't believe that there was a kind of way to get rid of the kind of status quo, the establishment. But now, particularly after the local elections in 2019, March elections, uh, where the opposition in general actually won all the big municipalities like Istanbul, Ankara, Izmir, the whole Mediterranean coast and Kurdish provinces. So it was a shocking experience for the government. And so now people actually now also believe that. It's not that they are just oh, being victimized and they are angry and they can't do anything. They have learned that when they can come together, then they can win actually. That's what we, what we did in the recent elections. And so now we are getting prepared for our final battle, we'll see. So tell me more about what it's like, life in the Kurdish majority regions of Turkey. Like yesterday we were told that even the Kurdish language could not be spoken in Parliament, 
and so the language is suppressed. Can you explain yeah. more about what is like for everyday life for Kurdish people in the Kurdish majority? Okay, that is, uh, thank you for the question, and I think that question can be best responded also by by looking into the situation of local governments, because lo- it is the local governments actually who do kind of interact people on a daily basis. So, I mean, in Turkey, as a policy since the foundation of this republic, Kurdish language and culture, of course, has been a major perceived as a major threat to the national existence and security of the Turkish Republic. It's very strange. I mean, why a language and a culture? I mean, by the way, by profession, I'm an anthropologist, a cultural anthropologist, actually, and I don't understand why a language and culture is perceived kind of as a threat. It's a language, it's a culture, for God's sake. The problem is, I think, the politicization of language and culture as kind of the main marker of national identity. And when Turkey was established in the early uh, 20th century, 1923, to be precise, and the formative years were like 1923 until 1940s, which happened to overlap with the rise of Hitler and other fascists and Nazi and all those you know, ideologies the crazy ideologies, the madness of modernity, right? I mean, so, and, and, and Turkey was developing its institutions and its kind of foundational ideology within that kind of a, a broader political climate. So they came up with this stupid culturalist notion of national identity, a, a racist notion of cultural identity. So this is only one culture, one language, one race, this, this kind of oneness of almost everything, but the problem was that the whole country was based on the kind of the remnants of the Ottoman Empire. I mean, 72 different nations they live in. Uh, 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 so what they did, they, to be honest, like, this is a historical thing. It's not just about the Republic. It started before that. They killed and genocided the Armenians. Right? They removed the Greeks with like population kind of exchanges, right? And the small Jewish community was further marginalized. Many of them left after, of course, the establishment of Israel. And the Alevi people were genocided several times. The Kurds staged like a total of close to 30 rebellions. All of them were brutally repressed. Right? You see. And then they established a country that is based on the foundational exclusion of all of these non-Turkish and non-Muslim, uh, uh, you know. Um, uh, elements, these, these sectors. So then, like pure Turkishness. So this is the founding ideology, and that is why the Kurds could not uh, have kind of any space, any medium for uh, cultural linguistic ex- expression. Leave aside political expression. I mean, some share of sovereign power, right? Leave that aside. So that is the general situation, but with the local government since 1999, when we first came to power, it's like 21 years ago, and of course the municipalities tried to implement various kind of cultural and linguistic programs here and there. Oftentimes, not through formal kind of um, institutions and organs, but there was kind of a, a generalized interest in the Kurdish language and culture, because to promote the language and culture, I mean, you need some institutional and economic uh, support. Otherwise, I mean, it's very difficult. I mean, I'm sure, like, in Australia, you have all those indigenous people. I mean, if you do not support them, it won't be that easy for them to protect and promote their culture and identity and language, particularly under this kind of very, very 
aggressive uh, tendencies of globalization everywhere, right? And so, but the problem is, uh, since 2016, uh, almost all of Kurdish municipalities won and run by my party, the HTP, uh, they, ha- they have been seized, their mayors removed totally unlawfully and sent to prison. And those municipalities, in 2016, 94 of our municipalities were forcibly taken. And then some bureaucrats were appointed. Appointed governors, actually. Right? They were, they replaced our elected mayors. So it is, this is the mentality. I think this is internal colonialism. So Turkish government is appointing uh, non-elected governors, Turkish governors, to rule Kurdish cities that are normally, normally run by elected Kurdish mayors. So this is colonialism. Yes, yeah, you see. So if, for example, in my uh, in the town Diyarbakir, where I represent, I mean the population of the city is more than one million. We get more than 500,000 votes, close to 600,000 votes. Um, and then in 2014, we had the, our co-mayors. By the way, the HDP is the only party that uh, implements uh, the co-mayor system. We have one male, one female. In 2014, we had 102 municipalities. And in 2016, right after the, military, the declaration of uh, emergency rule, they removed unlawfully all of our mayors and they sent them to prison. Still one is in prison, one is in exile somewhere in Europe, had to flee. And then between 2016 and 2019, uh, we didn't have any, any municipalities. It was mainly these Turkish governors, appointed governors, uh, ruling Kurdish cities. We don't have any kind of self-government. That's the major issue. This is actually one way we think empowering these governments, local governments. Some degree of autonomy may help to also respond to the broader political issue that we call the Kurdish question. But the government is just destroying every single local Kurdish institution that we have won through all this kind of struggle over decades, over a century actually. 2019, March, so we, for example, in the Arbaker, we, we, we won by 63% of the vote. And the governing party was like, I don't know, around 20-something percent. But that's what they did. They, again, they removed our mayor, sent him to prison, and then replaced him with some governor. Uh, and this is Turkish colonialism, par excellence. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but, but this is uh, kind of... Uh, and they have done a similar rule in the early years of the Turkish Republic. Right? If you ask me like, what is happening, I think those who are in power, the Turkish elite, they literally don't know what they are doing with the Kurdish question, other than attacking, killing, destroying, torturing. And not only in Turkey, but also in Syria, you are seeing there has been several kind of invasions like in certain parts in Syria, but the Kurdish territory, Turkey has never fought the ISIS there or any other group. Seriously. Even when they entered into ISIS territories, there was no fight. ISIS just left the place to them. Right? But it was Afri, Nisirkani, Strabiyad, Kurdish-dominated territories under Turkish attack. Turkey is now formally sponsoring all the terrorist groups in Idlib, for example, and NATO member, 
a member of the Council of Europe and the whole Western countries. I mean, I, I really sometimes I can't understand them. They are so hypocritical. They are seeing a member of the NATO and of Council of Europe, one of their key allies, is supporting all kinds of nasty, crazy extremist groups in Syria, huh? mostly because they are scared of another refugee crisis. Maybe all these refugees, brown people, may pour into European countries. They are so scared. See, so that is kind of the, the situation now. But, I mean, these are, of course, mostly on the, say, the, 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 the negative side that Turkey is fighting a war against the Kurds on either side of the border. Even the Kurds in Iraq are a threat. Because here, the, the idea is, like, Turkey, from the very beginning, as I, I have already said, uh, uh, has viewed the Kurds as, as the main national security threat. Foundationally. It's an existential issue. Like, that the Kurds exist, and they do have certain cultural and political rights, is so unbearable to Turkey. Right? Why? And I was thinking, like, what if, for example, the Kurds speak their language? What's your problem? Right? Why? What if the Kurds do have some autonomous region in Syria? Why do you feel so much threatened? They feel threatened because Turkey is based upon the exclusion of the Kurds, the non-existence of the Kurds. For 100 years, it was like that. But the kind of status quo established after the First and Second World Wars, the status quo that buried the curse beneath its, you know, uh, thing. So that is gone. So the, the, the Middle East as a region is being transformed now. And that's why the, from the cracks and splits here and there, all this mess in the Middle East, the curse are come of, kind of coming back to the political stage. It's kind of the, the, the return of the repressed. So they are here. 100 years, they killed, tortured, removed, displaced, exiled the curse. But we are going nowhere, we are here, we are in the Middle East. And now the region is being restructured, right, in Iraq, in Syria, everywhere, in Turkey, everywhere. So, and the only thing that we want this time, when new kind of political systems hopefully will be established in these geographies, we just want some pluralistic, democratic, fair political systems where the Kurds, and not just the Kurds, but other marginalized populations, they can, some degree of political representation, and some form of dignified life. That is not too much to ask for, right? All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio. Um, that was uh, the interview with the HTP parliamentarian uh, Hissar Osoy. Um, and, yeah, right there. And... Um, yeah, so now we got at um, now 7.48 a.m. And I actually think probably a good, interesting thing to talk about right now would be um, the current results around um, the Democratic primaries and um, what has sort of happened um, there. Um, Zane, you, have you been following it? Yeah, well, it looks like as the, uh, the kind of the mainstream... Right-wing neoliberal Democrats united around Joe Biden. Uh, instead of splitting their vote, they've kind of united the vote around Biden, and he's uh, pulled in front of Sanders, which mm. is yeah, pretty disappointing, but not completely unexpected, I suppose. Yeah. Because I think one of the one of the elements, I think it's it's been 
I mean, the Bernie Sanders campaign, I think, has been good in some sense, especially in terms of, like, um, the vote he has received in California. In fact, he's actually finally been declared the winner um, in um, California. And and he's clearly mobilising a strong, you know, a clearly radicalising working class base. In fact, that's reflected by the tens and thousands of people who attend his campaign rallies. You do not get that with any of the establishment candidates, especially Joe Biden. Um, and, you know, he's putting forward, you know, um, clear kind of proposals around Medicare for all, um, free education, etc. And in fact, his political response to the coronavirus um, outbreak that's currently happening in um, the United States has actually been quite good. Uh, in a sense, he's basically arguing that, you know... Um, in fact, one um, thing, he just did a press conference just recently where he basically said that, you know, no one should um, no one should be evicted. There should be a moratorium on, you know, um, evictions, um, uh, et cetera, anything that would, because basically people being evicted out of their houses, et cetera, while this sort of crisis is happening because they're not able to pay rent. Hmm. Um, and I think one of the things I think to say about the results is, I think it's kind of reflective of, I guess, a few things. And and, and I was reading a, a good analysis from uh, a DSA activist and socialist, Dan Labotz, who basically made a quite good analysis of, you know, why Joe Biden is winning. And I think the reality of why um, Joe Biden is winning is that the political context in the United States, despite the clear um, polarised political environment um, that is both moving in the left and the right um, and you can see this from um, the mass movements that have sort of popped up from you know Black Lives Matter, um, 50 Now, um, Standing Rock you know and then Occupy Wall Street kind of happened before there's clearly this growing radicalization and then there's also the teacher strikes that have been happening but it hasn't necessarily happened at a large enough scale that where there's full where the majority of the working class are completely convinced of the need for radical change. We just mm. haven't reached that stage yet. And I think what the Bernie campaign represents is that there is this growing radicalising layer that wants to fight for these ideas, that wants these mm. things implemented, and they're clearly frustrated with the status quo, but it's just not hasn't exactly reached into the majority of um, the population. And I think you can actually see this even in Australia, where we had this big jump in sort of mobilisation around the bushfire crisis, um, the fact that there were over, you know, hundreds of thousands of people went on the streets um, in response to the bushfire crisis, and then there was the fact that Morrison's approval ratings was going, you know, right down. Um, the fact that his approval ratings have essentially stabilised since then, I think, shows that, you know, really the consciousness of people right now is quite fickle and hasn't, you know, the only kind of alternative really that can resolve this is deeper levels of working class organisation, especially in the union movement. Um, and the reality is that's just not quite there. And, you know, going back to the Bernie Sanders campaign, the California result is reflective of the fact that actually California is one such state where there's high levels of um, trade unionism, um, there's high levels of you know, working class struggle, um, a strong history of working class struggle and working class organisation. That I think is, you know, for the the left really needs to be building from the ground up um, that kind of levels of working class consciousness, um, you know, for Bernie um, Sanders to even be win. Um, and of course, 
the fact is the Democrats are pulling pretty much all stops to the establishment because the Democrats are ultimately a capitalist party. Mm. And I think, you know, in the context of, you know, if there was, you know, a what-if kind of scenario, if there was high levels of working-class radicalization then actually the the campaign of bernie it's possible there probably would have been something far more radical than bernie that would have been an alternative um to him anyway because you know the reality is bernie is in a sense a moderate kind of social democratic he's not a necessary a revolutionary socialist so yeah those are all sort of open kind of questions but i also think another thing is looking at countries like venezuela um when hugo chavez first got elected he he was essentially running on a pretty you know, mild program. Um, it was his election that, in a sense, that the working class, um, class base around him um, radicalised quite quickly and there was a lot of spontaneous self-organisation in the working class. And, in fact, that's something that could have potentially happened with Bernie's campaign um, because, you know, the rich, uh, rich uh, you know, even though it's not, necessary electoral victories that change things it's not necessarily the actions of politicians from the top uh, are a boot um it can be a real boost to a movement from below when a left-wing electoral victory happens and that can expire sort of left-wing self yeah. you know, self-organization of the working class it sort of it unlocks a sort of dialectic or or struggle because in the case of Venezuela, Chavez wanted to implement some fairly mild reforms that would see a bit more oil wealth stay in the country. And the Venezuelan bourgeoisie and the, and the kind of who are really a puppet um, government of, of the US to a large extent, because so much of that oil wealth was going to US corporations, they couldn't handle that. It was kind of like the coup against Rudd because he wanted to implement a mining tax, but with the actual military storming the palace and arresting the democratically elected president. And uh, part of the the self-organising of the working class that you talk about in Venezuela was in response. So, yeah, if, if Sanders got elected, tried to implement, yeah, not a revolutionary program, but some fairly, like, meaty decent reforms like Medicare for All, Green New Deal, um, probably getting rid of ICE and, and starting to dismantle this disgusting racist um, system of, of prison camps, concentration camps for, for migrants. Uh, no doubt both the Democratic Party, the, the Republican Party, the, a lot of the media would have tried to get rid of Sanders and, and hobble those sort of things. And that would have created a dialectic where all those people who had voted for Sanders and supported him um, would have been prompted to come out on the streets and, and defend that. Uh, would they have won? Would they have not won? Was there enough strength? It's all a little bit academic, it's, it's looking like. But, um, yeah, that's. I think some on the left who criticise Sanders don't really grasp that aspect of things. Mm. That just because you elect a left social democrat and they're not a capital R revolutionary Marxist mm-hmm. doesn't mean that it's a a dead end or a step backwards for the class struggle. Mm. Well I think oh, I think one thing is it does um is I think the radical left has certain schemas. So I think the argument against the Sanders campaign is actually more that he's not necessarily a left social democrat and he's more like a liberal capitalist um which I don't think really 
holds water. I mean, because the main issue is the fact there is no such thing as a Labour Party um, in in um, in the United States political context. So I think you just have to take that account. And it's almost like we can't have this sort of fixated sort of schema that if only X had program Y, which in some cases most of the left would think it would only be a step forward if there was some third independent third party that would mm. be possibly reformist. In fact, it possibly would be a reformist social democratic party and would be the only thing um, that would grow because... The reality is, when it comes to all these developments that are kind of happening, we actually just, the left actually just has to take what we have. Um, just like the left had to take, um, Corbyn at what, what, um, and just like the left had to probably accept, um, the existence of Sanders, if there's clearly something, um, whether it's a reformist figure cohering, uh, a movement with social weight, we have to get at least get behind that and try and make the best out of that situation and do as much as we can to push the self-organisation of the working class on that basis. Because, um, yeah, that's that's the, the, there's lots of spontaneous, unexpected developments going to be happening, especially in late capitalism, especially in the context of neoliberalism, especially in the context of all these kind of defeats of the working class, that there's going to be insurgents happening from all sorts of unexpected places. And while, yeah, we should not get into the sort of illusions that, you know, these figure insurgent figures are going to be the saviors, especially if they are running on a fairly reformist um, platform. We actually have to take advantage of of these unexpected developments as they occur and hmm. look for ways by which we can push things to the left and yeah, the self organisation, the working class at the centre of it. Yeah, and we've interviewed uh, Isaac Silver, a DSA activist from Chicago, a couple of times in recent months, and he was saying, as someone who's been on the left since anti-Iraq war protest days. I'm not too depressed by Joe Biden pulling ahead of Sanders and it looks like we're not going to get the do- the nomination. Yeah, okay, that's that's kind of a bit sad and, and whatever, but the significance of this campaign is that it's really put socialism uh, on the map. It's a mainstream idea in in US society as a whole. Okay, then don't, it's not quite that mainstream that it's <clears throat> that a open socialist is winning the Democratic nomination. But like you say, Sanders is winning California, won a couple of other states, is getting a really high vote around a, a fairly left-wing sort of set of demands. And so, yeah, all is not lost. There's been big steps forward. Mm. Mm. All right, we might play a quick few announcements and then move on to the activist calendar. You are listening to Green Broadcast Live on 3CR Radio, 855 AM digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper, providing a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment before profit. Subscribe to Green Left Weekly by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au. Or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. Underneath the ground at the Olympic Dam mine, there is an old sleepy lizard. BHP is mining right into that lizard named Kulta, and it's not so sleepy anymore. The old frog and lizard... I really know the mining company 
The Lizard Returns Protestival 2020. Uncle Kev is putting out the call. This is an invitation to all people and protectors of the land and waters to get involved in the creation of Autonomous Zone as we move for peace and justice. BYO, your own creative response to the nuclear industry and BHP's water theft. Keep an eye on the Lizard Revenge page on Facebook or check out our website for history and info and updates on the lizardbitesback.net. The Lizard Returns Protestable, the 3rd to the 6th of July, Arabana Country. See you there. A 3CR supporter. Yeah, I spent three and a half years living on the street and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel part of the society and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. Right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. It is 8.02 a.m., which means it is time for the activist calendar. So um, what's happening today? Um, there's going to be the student climate strike organised by Uni Students for Climate Justice at 1 p.m. at the State Library at 328 Swanson Street in the city. Um, there's going to be the March Against Murdoch, um, Climate Truth Now, organised by Extinction Rebellion at 5 p.m. at the Treasury Gardens. Um, there's going to be the... Tomorrow, on Saturday the 14th of March, there's going to be the Moreland Climate Fair from 10am to 2pm at the Baldwin Royal Wilson Avenue in Brunswick. And then um, at 10am at the Basketball Court at Walker Street Estate near High Street Bridge on Northcote, there's going to be the Darebin Community Rally, Stop the Destruction of Public Housing. Um, from 12 noon at the Community Arts Centre, there's going to be a happy art um Hour, um, an oid to Frida Kahlo, and they'll be happening at the Community Arts Centre, 45 Moreland Street in Footscray. Um, from 1pm this Saturday, there's going to be the West Papuan um, Underground um, Car Park, um, West Papuan Fundraiser at the Underground Car Park at 44 Hamsworth Street in Collingwood. On Sunday, the 15th of March, there's going to be an artwork blockade, No Toxic Soil in Wyndham. We are blocking access to the site with community-made artwork at 2pm at the Stabling Yard um, site at Hobbs Road and Wyndham um, Rail. On Tuesday, March the 17th, there's going to be a public forum, Capitalism, Violence Against Women and the New Resistance. Women around the world are leading new campaigns against misogynist violence and harassment, the promotion of sexism by conservative governments and right-wing populist forces. This forum will look at these expiring movements and the central place of women's liberation and the struggle against capitalism. And that's going to be happening at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street in the city, opposite RMIT, and it's organised by Socialist Alliance. So they'll be happening on Tuesday, March the 17th. On Wednesday, um, March 18th, there'll be a protest, No Pipeline to Extinction, in solidarity with Canadian First Nations people fighting to halt the construction of a multi-billion dollar 
at Sailing Across the Noon. This will be happening at 12pm at the Canadian Consulate at 60 um, City Road, South Bank. There'll be a client rally to replace um, um, Victorian Coal at 12.30pm at the Parliament Steps, Spring Street. There'll be a public forum, Kill Robots in War, What They Are and the Need for a Ban, 7pm at the MUA, 46 Island Street in West Melbourne. On Friday, the March the 12th, there'll be a, pro- a protest organised by School Strike for Climate, I think at 12pm, uh, 1pm outside Parliament House. Um, there'll be a rally, Stop Family Separation, Stop Deportations at 5pm State Library. And then on Sunday, March the 22nd, there'll be Heavy Sunday at Last Chance at 6pm, the Last Chance Rock and Roll Bar, 2338 Victoria Street in the city. Yes, and we're going to be playing at that. Oh, yep. Yeah. Come on. Is that one of your shows? Hell yeah. (laughs) We'll be like the light um, palate cleanser between (laughs) a bunch of bands that are probably a lot heavier than us. (laughs) So there'll be on Monday, the 23rd of March, there'll be a public forum. Stateless detention hasn't changed, and this will be happening at 6.30pm at the ANMF house at 536 Alita Street in the city. Um, On... There'll be on Wednesday, the 25th of March, there'll be a forum, Climate, the Finance Sector and Shareholder Action, and they'll be happening at 7pm at the 1 Favour Sham Road in Canterbury. And then on Sunday, March the 29th, there'll be the Narrows Festival, Curtis New Year, um, happening from 11 to 6pm at the Coburg Lakes Reserve. On Sunday, March the 29th, um, there'll be the Shrans Pride March at 12 noon State Library 328 Swanson Street in the city. And then from Tuesday, March the 31st to Wednesday, April the 15th, um, a comedy show, Inconvenient Empathy, a tribute to Eurydice. Um, and this will be happening at the Rattlesnake Saloon, 140 to 146 Ligon Street in the city. Um, on Saturday, April the 4th, there'll be com- a conference, the Kurdish Freedom Struggle and the Ideas of Abulong Ochlon, a one-day conference looking at the current state of the Kurdish struggle for human rights and democracy across the Middle East and what can be done to build a stronger solidarity movement in Australia. So that'll be happening from 10.30am to 5.30pm at the Multicultural Hub at 506 Lewis Street in the city. And then on Sunday, April the 5th, there'll be the Palm Sunday Walk and Concert um, Justice for Refugees, 2pm at the State Library. Um, and then on Tuesday, um, April the 7th, there'll be a public meeting, Democratic Socialism as a Real Utopia. Hans Bayer discusses his new book on eco-socialism as a viable alternative for the 21st century. They'll be having it at 7pm at the new International Bookshop. So, yep, that's, um, yep, pretty much it in terms of events. Um, now one thing to note is, um, Yes, just a forewarning. Um, we probably don't know the status of a lot of these events that are going to be happening in the future. Mm. Um, cause as we were sort of stats discussing at the start of the show, this is sort of the, <laughs> the early, um, there's probably get, there's probably going to be a storm happening around the coronavirus. Mm. And in fact, a lot of public events are like, potentially likely to be cancelled, mass gatherings especially, um, we're already hearing talk, as we said before, that universities are going to be shutting down, um, with the weighing one I've heard being RMIT. Um, there's potentially, um, but I, I imagine that once RMIT happens, other universities are going to follow suit. So yeah, brace yourself. Um, well, I mean, pop- I think it's worth mentioning at this point in time, yeah. some of the pioneering work 
of the uh, Socialist Equality Party and the World Socialist website who have been really um, pushing the concept of the online rally <laughs> for some years now. And I think that's an idea whose time has truly come. And I think we might see uh, some more substantial online rallies <laughs> in, in coming uh weeks and months yeah and it's like one of the one of the uh, one of the things is um a, di- a difference of this situation is it's actually you know one of the things about building an activist movement is you kind of need to bring people out on the streets and it's a bit hard to bring people out on the streets when there is a pandemic going on <laughs> <laughs> and people say well, you can't just go say oh well we're going to protest anyway and you know the authority might step in but it's like yeah well we need the power numbers um and it's a bit hard to mobilise the power numbers if there is a pandemic going on. Yes. And it's probably not a good look if we're trying to mobilise people. On the other side of the ledger, I don't think uh, authoritarian uh, blanket bans on on any form of political protest are a good idea either. Mm. So, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a, a tough kind of... It's going to be tough to... It's going to be a tough week for, I think, coming months for the left in terms of how we're going to properly organised in the response to this whole pandemic. Mm. Yeah, I mean, people are going to have more spare time. So it's. Uh, I think there's an opportunity to, yeah, while people have got a bit of spare time to get them reading a bit of radical literature and having some, mm. yeah, online, probably online rally is a bit of a whack idea and I was being facetious before, but uh, certainly group chats and, and political educations and stuff like that, there's an opportunity to do a bunch of that sort of stuff. Alright, now I am going to play a couple of quick announcements and we're going to get Jason Wong on the line who is from Malaysian Progressives in Australia. So stick around. You are on 3CR and we're keeping it rad. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian starves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. So this is Sheba. And so is this. And this. Sheba, a program that explores feminist issues. Tune in Mondays, 10.30 a.m. for a show where only women get to speak, but everyone can listen. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. Um, on the line, um, we have Jason Wong from Malaysian Progressives in Australia. Um, and the reason we have him on the line is there has been some very major kind of political developments that have happened in Malaysia. Um, there's essentially been a backdoor coup um, with um, the 
previous ruling party has managed to sort of wiggles, wheel its way back into power um, following um, the results of uh, following the election. But um, we're going to have um, Jason Wan on to talk a bit about it. Uh, good morning, Jason. Hey there. Glad to be on the show. Yeah. Um, so, Jason, can you give us, I guess, a bit of a summary, especially for people who might not know much about what is sort of this current, the current political situation in Malaysia, especially in terms of this whole backdoor coup that's, um, that's recently happened? Try to be brief and uh, accommodate people who aren't familiar with the big names. Uh, there's a few names that people will have to know before we get started. Uh, name number one is uh, Najib. Najib is uh, the prime minister before before the current the, the current one. He was the one who got into global news for the big corruption scandal around the development fund, uh, which people might have heard about him from the, the scandal involving the, the film The Wolf of Wall Street, which he ironically ended up funding indirectly with the money that he embezzled. Um, second name is Mahathir. Uh, Mahathir was Prime Minister of Malaysia for about 22 years back in the, back from the, uh, about, around the 80s and 90s. And he ended up leading the opposition coalition, which defeated Najib's government, um, in the, in the 2018 election. So he was Prime Minister from, Mal- from Malaysia once again for about two years, um, leading up to this. Um, Anwar is, uh, was, for, was formerly Mahathir's uh, right-hand man uh, when when he was in charge of the country in the 80s and 90s they had a falling out over various issues leadership struggles and also how to deal with the 1997 financial crisis so Anwar was kicked out of uh, Mahathir's party at the time UMNO which is the United Malays National Organization which is a uh, Malay ethno-nationalist party and for the next 20 years he basically spent his spent his life trying to one trying to get out of jail and second trying to topple um, no, and he succeeded in 2018 when he joined um, the, that coalition with with Mahathir, and he's essentially been heir presumptive to the prime ministership for a very, very long time. But he's been passed over again, once again, uh, because of this coup. Uh, the fourth name is uh, Azmin, who is um, a name who, who is one of Anwar's uh, deputies inside the party that he founded after he after he was kicked out of Amno, uh PKR, which. It translates to the People's Justice Party. Um, and finally, Muhyiddin. Muhyiddin is the guy who is currently Prime Minister um, of Malaysia. And he used to be Najib's right-hand man in UMNO while the corruption scandals were going on. He uh, objected to Najib at, at a point when the corruption scandals looked like they were about to make him um, not, not, not credible as a leader. And in 2015, he was uh, purged in a captain, captain shuffle, which at, which at which point he defected along with quite a few um, top members of UMNO uh, into Mahathir's party, which was uh, Basatu. So what's happened in the in the pre- in the previous two weeks is that um, a bunch of Anwar's loyalists have pressed Mahathir for uh, a succession timeline. Uh, both men entered the 2018 election promising that Mahathir would hand over power to Anwar once once the situation is stabilized. And only in the past two weeks did Mahathir confirm that he intended to hand over power to Anwar uh, sometime in November this year after a big economic summit. At this point, um, Azmin, whom Mahathir had been grooming to be his actual successor um, as uh, and and was currently economic affairs minister, um, appeared to begin the process of a coup. And we won't know the details about this for some time, and maybe years before we find out the truth. Um, but he began assembling MPs from UMNO, which was in opposition two weeks ago, at a hotel. And essentially in the entire parliament of Malaysia descended upon that hotel in an attempt to work out whether there was um, a chance that UMNO would get back into power after having been 
been voted out in 20, 2018. Mahathir, in an attempt to stop this coup, resigned as prime minister, triggering a dissolution of parliament. And under Malaysian law, um, in that situation, the king gets to decide who the uh, prime minister is. And after about three days of back-and-forth negotiations, the king simply decided that Muhyiddin, that he believed Muhyiddin held the confidence of the parliament and selected him as prime minister. So that happened about a week ago, and we're waiting on parliament to sit um, before a um, mo- vo- motion of no confidence is moved against him, essentially, as what's going on. And um, can can you tell us about sort of what has been kind of the impact, I guess, of this backdoor queue? Um, people are pretty angry. Uh, most of the urban voting population and the vast majority of people who um, live overseas, like me, um, voted for the Pakistan government in the name of reform. And when they went to the election in 2018, the, uh, the, the reforms that they promised in their manifesto, although those of us who were politically switched on knew that there was a small, a very slim chance that most of them would pass, um, they, were, they were good reforms. Reforms around government transparency, um, election, re- election reforms, wealth redistribution, women's rights, uh, rights, for, rights for indigenous people. So we're under this new government, which is a coalition of essentially uh, Malay Muslim parties and Malay supremacist parties, um, pretty much every one of those reforms is, un- is in danger. And the, and the entire agenda of multiculturalism in Malaysia is also in danger. So uh, most of us are none too happy about it. Uh, the, Im- the immediate impact of it has been um, a plummeting of, of trust in the government, even more so than has happened over the past two years because of Pakistan's failure to implement its reform. And it's been... Um, Anger in some cases. There have been street protests organized. There was a snap rally. There are two snap rallies called in quick succession. One on the night that Muhyiddin was announced as uh, prime minister, and the next morning when he was sworn in. And um, what what can you tell? I guess um, what can you tell us a bit about what has sort of been um, the kind of movement on the ground, kind of response, especially the response of the left to, to this whole backdoor coup. Um, unfortunately, the response has been quite sporadic. Uh, Malaysia does not have a particularly large uh, radical left. The vast majority of uh, the campaign resources and uh, and uh, community organizing resources that exist in the country are in the hands of NGOs. And what has happened is that in the course of campaigning for the 2018 election, many of the NGOs uh, fell in line with uh, Pakistan, partly due to uh, yeah, partly because they don't necessarily have an organizing perspective in terms of grassroots grassroots work. They thought it was simply easier to get um, friendly, friendly MPs elected and get the reforms in that way. And that means that over the past two years, despite the fact that a lot of these NGOs have had a little bit of a window to breathe and uh, re- regroup themselves, haven't done so. So most of them were caught off guard by this coup. Um, and for the most part, they've had absolutely no idea how to respond. Right now, the NGOs are still pinning their hopes on a vote of no confidence, which is when Parliament will sit on May 18th. That's already even been delayed. It was supposed to sit on May 9th. It's been delayed to May 18th. In theory, Mohidin could continue delaying it for up to six months. Hmm. So for the for most of the NGOs, that's their strategy, and hmm. that's and that's a, a strategy that is completely at the at the mercy of Mohidin's whims. Amongst the um, amongst the uh, more radical left, the strategy has been, been a bit more clear. That the strategy has been to demand that there be snap snap elections because the government that's come in does not have the people's mandate. Um, it's been to demand no. To uh, racism and no to Malay supremacy in government because this particular coalition is a quite virulent mix of uh, Malay supremacism that we haven't seen in the country for uh, in, in in this particular coalition form for some time. Hmm. 
Yeah. And one of the, I guess one of the, uh, the things has been, I guess, um, the whole reason that the, um, um, that this new government, um, well, the government that just got sort of um, overthrown in this backdoor coup was elected off the back of, a, I guess, a mass movement. Um, and I guess one of the things has been has that I've noticed about Malaysia has been, um, you know, it's um, the challenge of kind of organising kind of mass mobilisations, especially in the face of police repression. And uh, is there likely to be any sort of changes? Is it going to go back to the old in terms of civil liberties? Um, and how will that sort of impact on the confidence of the grassroots to be able to mobilise against this? Um, the grassroots at the moment consists of people who are not particularly phased by the existing uh, regime of anti-protest law. So Malaysia has a slew of these things. There's anti, there's media laws that essentially can uh, nail you for um, under under various terms of censorship, for insulting the king, for endangering racial harmony. Uh, interpreted, it, of course, in favor of the Malay majority. And um, there's also uh, specific anti-protest laws like the Sedition Act. So, uh, and and then there's of course the Peaceful Assembly Act, which requires you to give notice to the police in in some cases for for calling protests. So, for example, both of those rallies that were called against Muhyiddin. Um, over the past week, every single one of their organizers was hauled in, and, and a bunch of other people that weren't involved but have a profile were hauled in for questioning uh, by, by the police. At the moment, this is mostly a procedural thing. Most people are not in actual danger, but there is nothing technically stopping the Mohidin government from making it so that whoever gets arrested um, could be uh, potentially abused in jail, could potentially be roughed up by the cops, harassed in, 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 in a more serious way. I think the only thing that's really stopping them at the moment is uh, the notion, the, the awareness that people are not happy about the backdoor, about the backdoor government. So they don't want to push things too far and end up, you know, snapping people out onto the streets for some sort of protest, protest action. Hmm. All right. Um, so, Zane, do you have any que- any one question you want to ask him? Um, yeah, I'm just interested, Jason, about this um, potential vote of no confidence. You've mentioned that a couple of times. Does that look like it's likely? I mean, it seems if there's been this kind of backdoor coup, potentially the, the balance of forces in the parliament is there's a bunch of turncoats who've kind of gone over and that vote wouldn't get up. If it did get up, though, what would that? What would the ramifications be? Okay, it is increasingly unlikely that it will get up. If it does get up, then what it essentially is going to be is a supply blockage bill. So they're going to interrupt supply to the to the budget, and then that's going to trigger a dissolution of parliament, which would go to an election. And at this particular point in time, given what Pakatan has been saying, or rather not saying, about Malay supremacy over the past two years, they are in no position to win an election. Hmm. So we're looking at a situation in which um, uh, UMNO and their sister and, and, their, and their friend party, Bas, which is the conservative Islamist party, basically go out to the East Coast in droves and say, uh, screw these screw these Chinese and Indian people. Uh, we're Malays. we got to defend our homeland. We're going to elect Malay people and safeguard your interests. And that's all they have to say. And Pakistan will continue to wax platitudes about multiculturalism with no actual plan to redistribute wealth and say that it's not actually uh, a race. An issue of race inequality is an issue of class inequality. And uh, UMNO will return to government with an, an improved mandate. That is the worry. So unless Pakistan is changing its, its narrative and putting some serious like weight behind its claims to support stuff like a higher minimum wage, um, they're going to lose if it comes to that. Hmm. Hmm. 
Um, well, we're running a bit um, out of time, I guess, to the interview. Um, but I guess, Jason, do you have any sort of final comments you would like to kind of make about the political situation in Malaysia? Yeah, just just very briefly. Um, all of those names that I mentioned earlier, they're all they're all woven from the same DNA. This this question of Malay supremacism has plagued uh, Malaysia since its independence in 1957. The stuff about uh, constitutional rights for Malays, which could be described as a form of economic apartheid, is woven into the constitution. So it's no big surprise to anyone who's intimately familiar with uh, Malaysian politics that a coup like this was possible. We were all caught caught off guard by when it happened. But I would like to say that you know, um, unless there is some sort of some sort of movement back home that clearly and consistently articulates that the solution to uh, the question of Malay supremacism is not just some platitude about multiculturalism, but about saying poor Malays are poor because they're being leached off by rich Malays, as opposed to they're being reached, re- leached off by you know non non Malay uh, business people. We're not going to go anywhere, and we've been waiting for that for 20 plus years on the on the Malaysian left, and we'll keep fighting for it until we until we get to to that to that level of awareness. And we can start a mass movement on that basis. Hmm. Yeah, all right. Uh, well, thanks for uh, speaking with us. It seems uh, a little bit grim in the, in the coming period. Sorry for period. taking up time. Yep. Yeah. Cheers, man. Um, and, yep. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. But uh, yeah, it's a bit of a bit of a tough time for the Malaysian left uh, for yep. the look of it, mm-hmm. and could could be uh, could be tough for for a while yet. Alright. Um, yes, we'll, we'll talk to you again soon. Oh yeah, just, okay. uh, just one last thing. Um, yes. Um, I, we should have given Jason an opportunity to sort of advertise it, but those who, um, want to follow, you know, solidarity events, um, organised by the Malaysian community, I um, highly encourage you to follow, um, the Malaysian Progressives in Australia, um, Facebook page, um, which will hopefully, you know, be organising public forums and events in, um, in response to the, these developments. Uh, we're, organi- we're working on uh, getting a public forum set up as the, on the last Friday of this month. As we speak, details will be out forthcoming on that Facebook page. Yeah, we can. All right. We'll, uh, yeah, we'll repost that on uh, on our page too. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Cheers, uh, cheers, Jason. Jason Wong from the uh, yeah Malaysian Progressives in Australia group. Uh, just play a quick announcement, and we're getting towards the end of our show for this week. Hmm. Well, I guess some just some news to sort of um, uh, um, end off on. Um, stay safe um, with this whole um, coronavirus pandemic likely to sort of blow up within the next week or so. Um, wash your hands properly with hand wash or soap. Um, and the last thing is, yeah, apparently the Grand Prix has been cancelled um, following this um so that's the big last update I think I have on there. Oh yes, it has. Yeah, wash those hands. Uh, if if you've still got access to soap, I don't think there's been a run on the soap yet. So. <laughs> well, even though the soap actually washes better than um, the hand wash, the hand sanitizer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and find a good twenty-second-long song that you can hum to yourself as you wash your hands to make sure that you're washing them properly. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to hand over to Beyond Zero Emissions. Stick around. You're on 3CR. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, 
you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned in to 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. start sometime. What better place than here? What better time than now? It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing 